Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as, if you join my book club below, you will be my new favourite. <laughs> Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's addition to the Humans of Twitter list, John Birmingham. Hey, Malky. How you doing? JB, I am doing exceedingly excellent. If only I could have been sitting next to you, but the weather has conspired I, uh, against us. I bought Portuguese custard tarts for our date this morning. Oh, my God. I don't. I have to uh, eat them myself. Well, probably better for your hips than mine. <laughs> JB, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Um... I, I introduce myself as JB. It's uh, if it's my wife doing the introductions, it's John. But um, mm-hmm. if it's me, I uh, I have been JB for a, a long time, and I'm I'm comfortable in that very old coat. Uh, I don't necessarily tell people who I am or what I do, uh, and it, it's you know it's, it's funny. Like we're sort of most of the way through now, but I. I moved back to Brisbane about 10 years ago because uh, mm. our daughter was starting school and we decided that, um, you know, a couple of years interstate parenting without uh, the benefit of any family around had broken our spirits like dry twigs and we <laughs> tucked our tails between our legs and came back up here where we had a lot of lazy aunts and uncles and grandparents just sitting around with nothing, nothing. to do. So yeah. we put them uh, under the babysitting yoke uh, and started up uh, school here for uh, for my daughter, and that meant I was, you know, back in this strange place I hadn't been for a long time, where I was meeting people and having to introduce myself and, and do that thing. Oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a very interesting person. I do this, yada yada. And, uh, <laughs> I would uh, I would often just describe myself as uh, as a journalist or a columnist or uh, or a writer, and of course, then people want to know, you know, what is it you've you've written and uh, it was often, you know, they're not there. They're there to drop their kids off at school. They're they're, they're not there at a, a reading or anything. And so, I, I'd often just let that that knowledge, you know, sort of leak out over time. And you know what? There's millions of people who haven't read my books, and mm-hmm. there would mean nothing to them who I was. Uh, but then occasionally, you you know, you would find an obsessed fan on the playground, and. Um, uh, yeah, it's it, it was weird for a couple of years. Nowadays, I'm just yeah. Hi, I'm I, I'm the internet's JB. How you doing? <laughs> in uh, I guess the, the the broader context now that you have reestablished yourself in Brisbane, mm. I, I would expect that there's probably not a lot of introducing of yourself that needs to happen because you're either somewhere socially where people know who you are or you're somewhere professionally where people know who you are. Yeah, look, professionally that's so. Socially, you know, I'm a parent of teenagers. I don't I don't have any friends. I don't have a social <laughs> life, mate. But, um, I, uh, I, I get myself off to a, a jiu-jitsu class a couple of nights mm-hmm. a week and that is actually what passes for my social life, um, you know picking blokes up and throwing them around and, and being picked up and, and thrown around. We, we get together for a cup of coffee after our um, big class on Saturday. And, and that, is, that is the social highlight of my week. I just don't... Um, I am just in that dreadful, dreadful valley of social death that everybody must pass through as they uh, walk, walk across planet parenthood. So socially, mm. it's, just, it's really not that big a deal to me. 
and as you say, professionally, it, yeah. I, I'm, I actually don't thrust myself on people very often. I, I tend to get dragged into stuff, and so you assume <laughs> that they know who I am. Dragged into stuff, gosh. What's your superpower? Uh, a long time ago, I figured, uh, I figured out how to enjoy myself at parties. Um, most people find parties hideous, and the kind of people who don't are generally hideous people. Um, uh, and it's, it, it took me a long time to, to figure it out. And it was actually journalism that, um, that, that did it for me. I, I, I came to understand that um, everybody has at least one story they want to tell. Uh, everybody is the hero of their story. And, um, and everybody loves a compliment. And it was journalism that taught me all those three things. And once I, <laughs> I, I, I nutted that out, it was literally like discovering a superpower. I could go into a party where I knew, you know, maybe only the host. Um, I've been to a, a couple of those. And um, once you have that information that everyone loves a compliment, that you walk up, you, you know, you pay somebody a compliment. Uh, it's like, you know, you've seen their magnificent hairdo from across the, the, the room. Or, oh, my God, look at those shoes. Where did you get those shoes? Um, and then, you know, you just, uh, you engage them on the topic which most fascinates them in life, which is themselves. And uh, yeah, I, I struggled, like most people, I struggled through my teen in, teens in most social situations, but uh, I came to that understanding of, of human psychology a couple of years later, and it's, it's never let me down. If you're asking what would I most like as a superpower, however, uh, the ability mm. to teleport, right, that would be awesome. Oh. You could have teleported over here and had your custard tart. I'm working on it right now. Let me tell you that. Every fibre in my being is trying to be there. It's crazy. Teleportation, I think, is highly underrated and there's not enough people that are working towards trying to make it a reality. My my wife actually even disagrees. It's a superpower. She says it's a technological artefact. And I keep saying, no, it's a technological artefact. If you get into the teleporter on the Enterprise and beam down to the planet you know to die if you're a red shirt but uh, <laughs> if you just do it yourself like the guy in Jumper uh, which was a great uh, sort yes. of YA novel and actually better film than most people gave it credit for you know you just I want to be in Paris I want a croissant so you, you, you teleport to Paris maybe you pay for the croissant maybe you just grab it and teleport back home because you know you're the teleport yeah. guy you, you don't have to pay for that croissant right? so that, that would just be awesome that would be my chosen superpower I, I would be down with that. Well, you can't have it. It's mine. You, you've got to have another superpower, like, I don't know, super strength or something. You could be the tank. Well, look, we, we have to form our own version of the Avengers at some point to protect the country, so yeah. I'm down with that. Mulk smash. <laughs> In a crisis or an argument, are you fight or flight? Uh... I'm sort of, you know, the very quiet possum in the corner up until the point that, you know, the claws come out. I, I really do not like conflict. Uh, I was brought mm. up in a very quiet family. Um, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of elbows flying around or, or, or harsh words. We were, um, you know, we were quiet people and, and, and we still are, uh, in contrast to my my wife's family, who are, they're not Irish, but they should be. <laughs> it's just, you know, uh, to be sure. Um, and I just, I find that's carried across into my, uh, my adult life, which is really weird if you, you think about my, um, or one of my public personas, the, 
uh, you know, the sort of the Hulk smashing columnist. It looks like I enjoy a fight, but uh, uh, you know, that's that's just acting, and I'm not, you know, in conflict with the people. It's it's actually very rare for me, unless it's uh, Bob Ellis, God rest his soul, or, or Tim Blair. It's pretty unusual for me to actually get into a, um, uh, you know, a, a full-on confrontation and live exchange with somebody. Mm. But on those occasions that it does happen, I figure once you're in, um, you, you're all the way in and you may as well just go for it. Has that caused you uh, many problems in your life? Well, look, once or twice. Uh, it's Actually, it's opened up a lot of opportunities for me. I used to... Um, uh, I grew up in Queensland when it was still a, a sort of hillbilly dictatorship and... Um, you know, so I went to a lot of demonstrations that turned violent, and uh, I was—I found myself to be very comfortable within, right, right within the centre of that 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 swirling chaos. Um, and uh, I think it was probably because you know I had that quiet upbringing. But you know, when, when it came time to snap, I was quite happy to snap as well. Yeah. Um, professionally, I can only think of. A couple of occasions where I've uh, got myself into trouble. Um, uh, one was uh, on Twitter quite early on, uh, where I just I'd been interstate working, I think, and I'd, I'd been on a I'd been on a flight home quite late at night, and um, I got caught between two uh, massive sweating businessmen, two morbidly mm. obese sweating businessmen, and it was just. It was just gross, and um, I very foolishly tweeted about it. <laughs> I got off the plane, and I didn't even know that things like, uh, uh, you know, the fat acceptance movement existed. In fact, I had just, uh, I, I used to be morbidly obese. I used to be up at about 129 kilos. I was, uh, I was a massive unit, and I, it, um, it didn't almost kill me, but it almost cost me a book tour once. I was supposed to go to the US in uh, January, and... Um, make an appearance at Comic-Con and then actually two of the states, uh, two in a book. And I, I, uh, I was really unfit and I was pretty unhealthy. And over Christmas, I caught a cold, which turned into um, uh, pneumonia. And, you know, it, it laid me pretty low. And because it was the northern winter, uh, the, the doctor was, you know, for a while adamant that I wasn't going. I, I dropped about five kilos while I was just uh, lying in my sick bed, shivering and sipping water and eating apple skins. And um, mm. having dropped that weight and having uh, um, having almost missed something that I was really looking forward to with that book tour, I then just said, look, this is ridiculous. I've got to do something about this. So I, I, uh, I, I set myself the goal of, of getting down to, um, to merely overweight rather than morbidly obese. Mm. And... Uh, that was the headspace I was coming out of. Uh, and I just, you know, I put this tweet out that, that I really, on contemplation, probably should have just kept to myself. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, bang, instantly, I just had uh, the, um, uh, like, the, the sort of the advanced scouts of the fat acceptance movement up in my face. And I just thought, you people are fucking crazy. Like, I've just, you know, I've just spent a year getting rid of this weight that was going to kill me. And... You know, rather than doing my normal thing of just sitting in a corner like a possum, I just arced up. I think because I had had such a hard time 
losing the weight. And then, of course, it's a lifelong struggle keeping it off. Um, mm. It's really, really hard. We, we, we live in a, a world of super abundance and uh, you know, we, don't, we don't hit the tundra or the, the savannah plains uh, chasing mastodons and being chased by saber-toothed tigers anymore. So you know, our, our fate, if we don't watch it, is to just grow large on the brown couch in front of the TV. And uh, I got into a fight with these guys and uh, I, uh, I regret it to this day. The Boombars know how to come out pretty hardcore these days, don't they? It's, like, it's weird. It's it's, and it's, I say that as a morbidly obese dude. Oh, uh, look, I have watched. That was my, uh, that was my, uh, my introduction to um, the sort of uh, the swarm effect mm. on um, on Twitter, where you've you've upset. Yeah. Uh, a group of people, and they swarm you. Uh, it wasn't all bad. Actually, some of my, 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 my closest Twitter friends um, I met during that same period because they, they hopped in and, and you know, uh, for whatever reason, they, they gave it right back to them. Uh, and, I, you know, uh, having been a big guy, <laughs> I had a lot of friends who were big guys too, and they just said, like, no, don't worry about it, they're fucking idiots. Um, you know, they said, you know, I, I, I wish I had the, the stick to... Um, you know, to, to stay on an eating plan and do some exercise. So it was, uh, it was, it was pretty unpleasant. But you know, I, I made some pretty good friends out of it. But the it, the thing that stayed with me is the, um, I, we're, you know, we have a name for it now, which is call out culture, uh, mm. which makes it sound something, you know, positive. And it, it can be, but it, it can also be incredibly uh, destructive and vindictive, and and a channel for people who have a lot of a lot of pain and anger in their own lives to direct it at uh, what looks like a, a, you know, a, a really deserving target. Have you seen, given your experience, have you seen many of those instances uh, happen to, to those around you or even beyond where it might have uh, I've been? I've seen it, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Mia Friedman's a bit of a walking bullseye. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she occasionally, uh, uh, she's quite capable of bringing it on herself, but I, I've also seen her, you know, just cop it for no good reason. Um, yep. and I've, you know, I've, I, I, we're not mates. I don't know her that well, but I've met her a couple of times professionally and, uh, you know, um, as, you know, as far as you can be friendly with someone under those circumstances, I'm friendly with Mia. And, you know, when I thought that she was copping it for no good reason, I would quite happily, you know, jump into that fray and, um, you know, spend the day in a, uh, in a Twitter bingle, um, which can be a lot of fun. Uh, I've seen, uh, um, you know, journalists do it occasionally. You know, they'll, um, they'll occasionally get themselves caught up, you know, because they... <laughs> Journalists, they'll often, they sink into a story and they develop an opinion about it and they sort of yep. forget that they're deep inside the story and that there are people who don't share their perspective and, um, you know, they, they can see, like, all of this effort and all of this thought um, condensed down into what can seem a very blunt and insensitive 140 characters and boom, all of a sudden you've got a, uh, a Twitter storm broke out so um you know you've seen that a few times uh 
And then, you know, you get the, the, the famous ones. There's the, um, the John Ronson book. Uh, I forget the exact name of it, but it's, I think it's like So You've Been Shamed on the Internet yeah. or something like that. And there was that, that, that woman, um, I can't recall her name. She was a PR flack, and she hopped on the plane to go to South Africa, and she said something stupid like, I hope I don't yep. get AIDS or some shit. And uh, as somebody who writes jokes for a living, I could see exactly what she was doing. And, you know, she wasn't... Uh, poking fun at people who have AIDS. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't being intentionally nasty. But the joke, like, denuded of her life experience, stripped of any context, and just thrown into somebody's timeline as a raw 140 characters, just, you know, looked like some privileged white mm. bitch poking fun at black people who were dying of AIDS. And um, bang, you know, off it went. Uh, and there's been enough of those, and they've been high-profile enough for... Ronson to have um, to get a whole book out of it. I actually, I it's wrote a great a, read. One of my favourite columns I've ever written was about this. It's called the uh, the Twitter Storm, um, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was enormous fun to write. Um, I, I, I can't even recall where it, it came out of. I had to. The, I think the Herald rang up one day and said, "Cough, we, we've got an eight hundred word hole to fill. Can you do it?" And I had just been thinking about this topic, and I said, "Okay, I'll, I will write you an autopsy of the perfect Twitter storm." and um, <laughs> I was just reading it the other day because I, I decided to gather up a bunch of old columns and put them in a collection, and uh, that one's going to go somewhere up the front because I, I really enjoyed it. Given your you know conversation around losing weight and those sorts of things, mm. this this may be delicate, else it may not be. What's your favourite takeaway food choice? Ooh, mate. Uh, that is a big ask because I have so many of them. Um, <laughs> Uh, to, to some extent, it depends on where I am. Um, like I'll have choices in, in cities in other parts of the country or the world, which I'll just go to as soon as I get there. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think uh, like in Sydney, I don't even know if it's still there, but there's a, a cafe on Crown Street called the Maltese Cafe that used to do just pastizis, uh, little um, baked uh, flaky pastries. Some of them were savoury. Yeah. It was uh, chicken and mushroom and cheese and... Um, maybe cheese and spinach, and then there was uh, apple and custard and, and so on. God, I love those things. I just, uh, when I go to Sydney, I, I usually make time to, to go and get one. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, hamburgers. Uh, mm. In fact, I'm, I'm conducting a longitudinal study into the <laughs> resurgence of the hamburger as a... Uh, as a sort of culinary form, because I mean they're mm. everywhere, but there's there's some really good ones up here in um, in Brisbane at the moment. In fact, I, I may well end up writing that blog this afternoon. Uh, so, I think, generally speaking, pastizis and hamburgers are my my types of food. But um, if you if I had to just pick one particular uh, one particular thing out of the the air, it would um, probably be the beef rendang from Timmy's Kitchen in Canberra, which I don't think is even there anymore. And it's a great loss. It sounds it. Love a good curry, gosh. What What are the elements of a, of, a, of the perfect burger? Uh, we, you know, you start from the outside with the bun. Uh, can't mm-hmm. be too sugary or soft but on the other hand you don't want you know some dreadful like you know rock hard 
uh, piece of sourdough that it's just you know going to be so hard that when you bite it, all of the contents of the burger shoot out. So getting the burger right is important. Mm. Um, the uh, uh, there's a couple of places which seem to use a slightly denser uh, brioche style bun. So there's obviously some some sugar in there, and that helps with the caramelization of the the bun when it hits the um, mm. hits the grill. Uh, the, obviously, the the meat is important. You want a reasonable fat content. You actually don't want your burger to be too lean. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you're killing yourself with this thing. You might as well do it properly. So um, <laughs> you want uh, if you can find someone who's doing an actual uh, uh, wagyu burger, which means you know beef with a bloody high fat content. <laughs> Um, that would be good, but there's a lot of wagyu around, which is just you know, you know Coles mincemeat. It's just they're, they're lying. They lie. Uh, so you get your you know your your, your good patty of uh, marbled fatty beef. It's uh, seared at a high temperature. I'm a um, uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, uh, yeah medium rare. Um, mm cooking when I'm eating a steak but with a, a burger patty I actually I want most of the blood out there um, and uh, uh, but I'm happy to have the, the fat sort of you know cascading off in a Niagara fall of um, mm. lethal lipids uh, then you will need a just a, a you, you, the, the basic form of burger is a cheeseburger and um, mm. I am uh, a, a big believer in um, um, processed American cheese on a burger. So, you know, there are all kinds of beautiful uh, European and Australian cheeses you put on, but uh, for a cheeseburger, nothing beats a big orange slice of American jack cheese. Oh, it is my, yeah. uh, my preferred manufactured dairy product to stick on this particular feast. A nice crisp uh, leaf of iceberg lettuce and a, mm. um, uh, a lovely uh, freshly sliced circle of a bright red tomato and you are good to go that's that's all you need for a cheeseburger but having said that i am more than happy to just keep piling shit on until it becomes ridiculous. <laughs> what's too far when it comes to adding shit onto a burger oh bacon eggs uh, uh fries I, I when i was at university i used to every single night say i got 129 kilos i uh, <laughs> used to go down to the student club and I'd get the club burger, which was a basic, pretty rotten burger actually, but it came with a big side of uh, quite nice fries, I think because they never changed their cooking fat. So you had, uh, you know, had the, the glory of 30 or 40 years worth of uh, student catering sort of condensed into these, mm. um, these big fat potato fries and I, I would stick them onto the burger so you'd have the fries on the burger and um, that's pretty good. Uh, the, 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 at the other end of the um, uh, scale, I, I once had a, uh, a burger in New York, which cost me over 100 bucks because it was made by a, a French chef, uh, Daniel Bulod, I think his name is. And uh, there was a yeah. great big plug of uh, pâté de foie gras stuck in the middle <laughs> of that Wagyu patty. And uh, it, was, it was worth 100 bucks. Oh. I can imagine. Gosh. Burgers are an entirely underrated means of delivering calories. Yeah, look, they are. I, uh, I recall a conversation, this is a long time ago, certainly before I put my weight on, where uh, I was kind of underweight. I was a skinny teenager, and uh, I, I wanted to, um, 
to bulk up a little bit. And I actually, I was a student at the time and I went to a, a sort of exercise nutritionist on campus and um, we were discussing what I could eat. She actually recommended burgers. She said, if you get a good burger, particularly one made at home with, with good ingredients, uh, you can get all your, your food groups in there and um, mm. it, it can be quite high quality. I think burgers for dinner tonight, that's what's happening right here. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm doing uh, fettuccine boscaiola for dinner tonight. Nice work. What TV has caught your eye oh, recently? I'm, uh, I am in, um, <laughs> I'm in streaming hell at the moment because, uh, you know, as you would know, this, it's, it's the, uh, the hot new thing. And you mm. know, people complain about, oh, you know, Netflix US has so many more shows than Netflix Australia. It does. But, um, you know, you reckon you're going to get through the two or 3,000 shows <laughs> that Netflix Australia has? Like, particularly if you've got a, like a Stan subscription like I do or you've even stumped up for, um, for Presto. There is just, mm. there is too much to watch. I, you know, you, one of the things I like about these services is they you know, allow you to just add things to your list so you can... You know, it's like a, a personal um, video on demand library, and you know both my lists on um, Stan and Netflix uh, are pretty long. There's you know um, stuff that I, I didn't get to when it was first broadcast, stuff that I've always meant to watch, and stuff that I, I come back to. I, I just realised the other day that um, uh, Stargate SG One, the TV series, had popped up yeah. on Stan and. Uh, you know, I've watched that two or three times, and I just thought uh, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't need to watch this again. I don't need to, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll just have a little look, just to, uh, just to see what it was that drew me in the first time. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's an old TV. It's it's probably pretty, 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 pretty it'll be it'll be wobbly looking. I reckon. I, I I reckon I could watch this and go, ah, you know, this was rubbish. I don't know why I watched it. Anyway, I watched it. I was sitting there watching the first episode. God, this is really good. Like you know, mm. the premise, the acting, the, uh, uh, the just the characterization. I think what they really nailed with that particular series was those four central characters. They um, yeah. they really really got that ensemble cast exactly right. And then the, you know the supporting characters were were good too. There was a lot of um, there's a lot of humour in that show. It's it's not a comedy. But just like people in real life, the characters have their own senses of humour, their own um, yep. uh, their own style, their own wit. And as as it goes on, they uh, you know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of personal history gets accumulated, and a lot of a lot of their humour is is in jokes. It calls back to earlier adventures and earlier episodes. And as a viewer, you you share their their secret uh, joy at. At, at those jokes and so I just you know despite my best intentions I've started watching it again um, <laughs> I watched uh, uh, Justified all the way through mm-hmm. I, I never actually binge I, I, because I simply don't have time but what I tend to do is just invest in a series and then that just that goes on on my high rotation list so yep. uh, for a, quite a long time uh, Justified was all I was watching and I'd watch you know one two at the most three episodes a night and um, again that was uh, I mean you know it's it's it's, a, it's an Elmore Leonard vehicle so the, the the architecture of the narrative and the the character is is going to be good but it, it was you know it was an Elmore Leonard short story and they they spun it out into five or six uh, seasons of TV and yes. it was um, it was fantastic like all TV shows it, it had its sort of uh, you know, patches where it sort of just spun its its wheels for a while, and the um, 
there's a couple of characters towards the end, um, you know, the, the Walton Goggins character, um, mm-hmm. who just just they just push the crazy button a little too hard on him in the, the I think the second last series, although he pulled mm-hmm. it back in the last one. But I I I, I finished it and I, I went straight off and, and wrote a, like a fifteen hundred word essay about it because I just I enjoyed it so much and um, and it was interesting. It was never a show that was uh, huge uh, on broadcast TV. Uh, but it has a, a really, really um, uh, determined following. In fact, there's a friend of mine who um, uh, had uh, he, his, had twins when he and his wife had uh, their first kids, and the um, uh, the, the twins are uh, named Raylan, and I forget what the other one is, but it's basically names drawn from the, uh, the series. So. Yeah, that's that's devotion. So there's that. I've just recently got into Outlander, and yep. um, it's you know it's a sort of thing that would uh, draw me in because it's a time travel show, and it's a sort of thing that wouldn't draw me in because, well, you know, my understanding, which was not entirely accurate as it turned out, was that the, the Diana Gabaldon books on which it was based were, were historical romances, and they just you know I, really it's just not for me. Um, but I read a, a review, I think it was in a men's magazine, it might have been Esquire or something like that, and it said, you know, men, you should be watching Outlander, and it listed all these reasons, and, you know, it was, you know, bayonets and blokes stabbing each other, mm. and, and, you know, Scottish blokes drinking lots of whiskey and punching on, and I said, well, you know, I mean, it does have all that romance, but, uh, you know, blokes stabbing each other and, and, and Scottish fellas drinking whiskey and punching <laughs> on, I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty compelling case you're making there, Esquire. And so I, um, I gave it a go because it was on. Uh, I think it was on. I don't. I think it's Stan. Maybe it's Netflix. I, 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 I've got to get myself a new Apple TV because I'm hoping it does that thing where you just ask it. You know, Siri. You know, where, where is this show? Find me this. It'll tell you. Um, but uh, I started watching it and it was utterly compelling. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just fucking brilliant. Uh, it's you know it's it's British drama, so everything is done to a really fine pitch. Um, the the uh, like the set dressing, the interiors. Uh, you can actually it is so richly realised on screen that one one of the things I found myself doing was actually just stopping, uh, pausing the uh, the show occasionally, and just having a look at the the scenery, the sets, and just thinking, mm. God, you know, it must have taken them weeks to you know create this kitchen scene in the kitchen because there's just you know you know in australian tv particularly period australian dramas it all everything just looks a bit thin uh yeah it's it, it looks like a set where they just didn't really have enough money and um it's you know the uh, it was uh, i knew the um God, what was it? The there was one of the underbellies that was set, I think, in in thirties Melbourne. It might have been the Squizzy Taylor one. It was it was atrocious. But one of the things that marked it very very early as uh, an epic fail was the the set dressing. It, it yep. just uh, it it looked like they hadn't even gone to an antique store and bought a couple of you know period pieces with their small amount of budget. They they got somewhere like Freedom Furniture and bought an imitation <laughs> antique piece. Uh, it was just, oh, it looked terrible. Uh, but the thing about Outlander is that it is uh, visually gorgeous. Uh, it's just, yeah. uh, the, the, there's the 1940s set pieces and then there's, I think it's the 1740s set pieces um, or maybe a bit earlier. But uh, the, the 
just the, the realization, the design language on screen. It's that, that in itself, if you're interested in storytelling in a visual medium, is, is, is enough to, to justify watching the show. Um, but then, you know, the, the scripting is great, the story is great, and the characters are, are really well realized. And the, 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 I, I found myself uh, surprised at how much I uh, enjoyed the um, the main character Claire Beecham who tells the story because mm. she's I actually like strong female heroes but I, I like them in the um, you know uh, the the Marvel realization of strong female heroes so, yeah you know someone like Black Widow who can you know bust out some serious jujitsu chops on a bad guy and um, mm-hmm. you know this this woman is uh, she's been she's you know she's a nurse she's been on the front lines uh, in the Second World War so. She is, uh, you know, she's quite used to to violence and bloodshed. Uh, she hasn't become completely inured to it. Um, she doesn't have, you know, post traumatic stress like uh, Jessica Jones has, for instance. Um, mm. But uh, she's not, um, she's not a kick ass female hero in the Black Widow mold either. She's just really smart and very, very strong-willed. And that is enough to make her a quite fascinating character because, of course, she's not just a fish out of water because she's out of her time. She's out of her culture as well. And the fact that she is a woman in, you know, what is very, very close to a barbarian society Mm. uh, makes her, you know, it it means that she's imperiled the whole time. So I'm enjoying that. Um, I find it... I have to sort of stop myself watching it too much because I think they've only got the first season streaming. I think the second one yes. is, uh, is... Second's running on Foxtel right yeah, now. Yeah, okay. So when Fox has finished it, I guess, you know, somebody else will, will pick up the scraps. Yeah. Unless, you know, Fox decides that they want to hold on to it because um, that, that wouldn't surprise me too. They, they you know, they, they, they're increasingly playing hardball. Well, they, they always have, but, you know, now yeah. that everyone has realised what a threat Netflix is... Uh, everybody is moving to protect their turf. Um, so, you know, the, the whole thing with the Game of Thrones um, piracy in Australia is all down to, to Foxtel. You know, there was that, I think, one season when Game of Thrones was available on a season pass from iTunes or Quick Flicks. So it was like three or four places you could legitimately hand over your money and yep, watch Next day, show. here it is. And, yeah, and the piracy rates... Just, you know, they didn't go away completely because some people are jerks, but uh, they crashed because all the people who just wanted to watch the show now had a way to do it without giving, you know, Lord Rupert 130, 140 bucks a month. And yep. um, yeah, it didn't matter. Like, at the end of the, the season, Foxtel had a look at that and just said, we're not having that. We would prefer that a million people went off and pirated this uh, series. Um, if it meant that an extra five or ten thousand, you know, subscribe to our crappy pay TV service just so that uh, they can they can watch it in a, a timely fashion. So I'm actually not um, I'm not watching Game of Thrones. It's, it's funny because I've I'm, I've got uh, uh, Girl Clumsy Natalie Behinsky's mm. uh, uh, excellent recaps running on my blog. I can't read them because uh, I will. I, I am one of those schmucks who. You know, I make my, my living from uh, intellectual property and I just cannot bring myself to, uh, to steal it. So, you know, I, I don't 
watch pirated shows. I, I, I don't go to the torrents. Um, I, you know, I understand people who do, but for myself, it is yep. a personal moral choice. I don't do it. And that means that I will have to wait until everyone has gone through this series of Game of Thrones and um, then I will, uh, will watch it. And normally that wouldn't bother me um, because up until now, I was ahead of the curve. I had read all of the books. Yep. But of course, uh, I am now behind the curve because uh, the TV series has beaten the books into the world. Yes. So anyway, yeah, Outlander, uh, Justified, I think, was my, my, my big pick for the thing I most enjoyed recently. Uh, I've gone back to Stargate, which I'm secretly kind of ashamed about. But then, you know, fuck you. Fuck you all for judging me. <laughs> watch it. Did you like the movie? Uh, yeah, like, there was a couple of Stargate movies. Uh, and I, I enjoyed them all. Um, you know, some of them were just really, you know, made for TV um, schlockfests. But, mm. And some of them didn't have the core cast. Uh, I, as I said, I think the, the strength of that series, the premise is brilliant. Um, and the premise, you know, they took from the original movie. It is, it, it's, it's rock yes. solid as a story engine that will just keep driving you forward season after season. But the thing that made it great was, uh, was the casting. They just, they, they got it exactly right. Yeah. Um, what else am I looking at? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm slowly working my way through Breaking Bad. And I, I recognise it as you know a brilliant piece of um, of television, but it's just it's so intense. Like every yes. episode is just so intense that uh, I, I have to be in a very particular uh, frame of mind to watch it. Uh, I, I generally can't watch it at night because it just yep. you know, it's 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 too much. Um, same with uh, I had the same thing with Daredevil. Um, you know, Daredevil is, is you know it's a superhero thing, and it's it's uh, it's 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 not a real story in the way that um, Walter White's tale is. But yeah. it's you know you've seen the series, Daredevil. It's pretty full on. It was the first time that yes. Marvel said, "Look what we can do," and they did it. And I found with Daredevil that I loved every episode that I watched, but I would only watch one episode at a time because mm-hmm. it was just too much otherwise. Um, and the yep. other thing, actually, the, the, the last thing I've just started watching, and, and, and it's almost as an antidote to the intensity of shows like Breaking Bad and, uh, and uh, all the Marvels at the moment, actually, because Jessica Jones, which I'm, I'm into as well, uh, is also, that's, that's an incredibly dark show. Yes. Uh, so I often find if I just want something to, to watch before going to bed, um, just a, a light nightcap. I've started streaming the uh, the catering show through um, yep. ABC's iView app, and that's uh, that's brilliant. It's it reminds me a lot of the early seasons of not the nine o'clock news. It's got that mm-hmm. same sort of restrained anarchic potential to it, but they just let everything off the leash that little bit more, and it's um, it's really really good. Like there's you know. If I had to sit down and analyse it, I could probably come up with half a dozen really strong reasons why it's a quite brilliant, if not unprecedented, uh, piece of TV. But it's it's really even just the little things like how they don't call each other by their first name; they use their last yes. names like that. It's just the first time they do it, uh, two women calling each other by that. It's just weird. You just don't see that in real life or on TV, and because of that it actually sweeps the legs out from underneath you 
intellectually uh, and, and makes you less prepared for what's coming on uh, because you just you realise at that moment that this is not a normal TV show. It's not even a normal satire or a normal comedy. There's something yep. extra at work here. Have, have you seen all of season two of the Catering Show yet? <clears throat> no, I think I'm. Uh, I think I'm about four episodes into it, and I I, I just watched uh, the uh, the one the, the Feta episode. It which, gets fed uh, up. Yeah, uh, that's the impression I get is that they um, they actually felt a bit of pressure. Uh, and you can see that pressure on them in the first two eps, and then by the time mm-hmm. they get to three, it's like, oh, you know, we're still here, we're still in the ring, we're still kicking and punching, and um, I'm expecting it to get, uh, you know, quite... It's it's laugh-out-loud television, and I don't, um, I don't laugh out loud very often. I, I was watching uh, some episodes of 30 Rock once while I was doing the ironing, because I'm a modern man, and... Um, yes. Uh, my, my daughter actually sort of piped up from somewhere else in the house and said, Mum, what's that sound? And it was me laughing. Because, you know, I don't laugh very often. The the entire... Both seasons of The Catering Show are on ABC iView. Mm. Um, this second one has only really just been released. Yeah. Uh, and it is... Not only have those ladies managed to just, you're right, nail food culture to the wall and do some pretty funny things with it, they also have... Uh, a delightfully brilliant way in how they're uh, subversing, uh, being subversive about, around the promotion of it and those sorts of things. They did get an amount of, um, an amount, it was probably three or four, but some people say, hey, we're overseas and we can't see ABC iView. Yeah. And they responded just after the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard video came out, the biosecurity thing, yep. with their own version of that, apologising for the new season of the catering show not yet being available internationally but that it would be on youtube soon um yeah they just it was really really smart mm. very very funny what's the history did they they start out as youtubers and they they got picked up by the abc i think they're both comedians yeah. both writing and, and performers uh they connected i think they were both working on the same show it might have been ben elton's um abhorrence um that was his big Australian TV comedy thing that lasted three episodes. Yeah. Kate was a performer. Uh, sorry, Kate McLennan was a performer. McCartney was a, a writer, I think. Yeah. Uh, and they came up with this idea for it. The first series went out on YouTube on their own under their own steam and, and cost them a chunk of money and nobody made anything, but really shot them to some pretty serious internet stardom. Mm. Uh, and from that, the ABC came knocking and, and said, well, what about if we gave you some money to yeah. make... Yeah, you know, some more episodes. Rare occasions where uh, exposure bucks turned out to um, to be an actual uh, valuable currency. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It is so, so funny. Uh, I absolutely endorse what you're saying about the catering show. I think it's delightfully hilarious. Hmm. Yeah, it's a pity that it's not available uh, overseas. I, I would like to, um, I'd like to show it to friends of mine in the US who totally would not get it. <laughs> Well, you won't have long. It is coming to, to part of their agreement with with the ABC is that they can put it on their YouTube channel, and I believe that that is happening in mid May. All right, that's cool. What are you going to achieve in the next twelve months? Oh, mate, a lot. I hope um, I've had <laughs> a um, I've had a pretty tough twelve months of it recently, and I, mm-hmm. I sort of uh, um, just I'm running on vapors at the moment. Uh, I. Uh, I, I had my Dave Hooper series come out 
last year. Yes. And it, um, you know, it did okay, but it didn't do as well as the publishers wanted. And um, that just caused all sorts of trouble for me. Um, and one of the things was that I had just, you know, I'd written this series because they said, oh, we'd like a franchise character. And I said, well, you know, I've had this idea for a while I want to do. And so I, I sort of then, I, I block out my writing life years ahead. And so I yep. had blocked out this sort of like five-year path through, you know, the epic of Dave. And the first one came out and it would be really unprofessional of me to, uh, you know, get on here and make complaints about, you know, how the release of the series was handled and so on. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> But let's just say that I'm writing uh, a follow-up to that series uh, and I'm going to release it myself. And yep. yeah, any, anybody who's been following me on Twitter um, recently will have seen that I've been giving away books and asking people to join a book club. And um, this is all part of the, the plan. I'm still doing, um, you know, I still work in media. I still, you know, write columns for Fairfax. That was hugely amusing to me, actually, when uh, the, the Oz... Um, did that that story on the inside front page of uh, uh, you know Judith Lucy and, and John Birmingham, uh, high profile Fairfax columnists sacked because you know they, they love a good Fairfax kicking story and yes. had a column come out the next day. <laughs> so, you know, I just uh, I I was you know I'm, I still work for Fairfax. Uh, I don't know how long I work for them because you know that entire industry is under an enormous amount of pressure yeah. from. Um, Google in the first instance, who ate their business model, and increasingly from from Facebook, who are um, making a, a pretty pretty good fist of trying to turn themselves into what most people think of as the the internet. And I, you know, I can see a situation a couple of years down the track where, um, you know, maybe not Fairfax, but places like Fairfax, uh, they don't even have a website anymore. Or if they do, it's kind of a ghost town. Most of their stuff gets published through Facebook, and of course they're doomed as sort of as soon as they do that because they they make themselves the indentured servants of Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I have like you know this stuff has been coming for years, and I've known it's been coming for years. So I've sort of been preparing my own escape routes from from media work, <clears throat> and that's what this year is all about. To sort of get back to your, your original question, I've got. Um, one of the frustrations of working with uh, trade publishers is that, um, you know, they have their business model and their plan and it doesn't necessarily encompass all the stuff that, that I want to do. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm signing a deal with my US publishers, Random House, to do a big space mm -hmm. opera um, and that will probably Excellent. come out next year it's going to be called The Cruel Stars and it's going to be fucking awesome because uh, I've been brewing up this idea for years I've always 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 wanted to write space opera and for years it was a, a dead um, dead genre uh, you know my, my agent Russ and I used to get on the phone and, and you know sort of cry on each other's shoulders about this because we both love you know big honking spaceships and big honking space guns and yep. uh, nobody would publish it it was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years out of date. And then, you know, Star Wars is back and The Expanse is on TV. And there's actually, you know, there's quite a bit of space-based uh, SF on the cable networks. I think Star Trek mm. is coming back to uh, CBS next year. And all of a sudden, you know, Star Wars obviously is everywhere and it's, it's hot again. So 
Um, I have an opportunity to write a space opera, and I have just jumped on that with you know both size twelve boots, and I'm, I'm loving mm. it. But having said that, I really enjoyed writing those previous series, and the readers of those series, um, you know, some of those people are really bloody deeply invested in them. Like I, I know people because uh, they talk to me on Twitter about it. They've they've read Weapons of Choice eight or nine times. Like you know, some of them read it every year. Same way that yep. some people read Stephen King's The Stand. Like I think I've read that seven or eight times. And some yep. people read those books and you know, they would like me to write more in those series. And I would quite happily write more in those series as well. But, you know, up until recently I wasn't able to because the uh, you know, the publishers weren't particularly interested in it. They just wanted, you know, whatever was new, whatever would fill the shelves next year. And I just given the frustrations I had with uh with Dave, like the Hooper series last year, yep. and the fact that the people who read those books, for the most part, really fucking loved them. Um, and I could see that there was an audience there for it. Uh, given that, and, and given the audience that I knew was there for those earlier series, I eventually, my frustration levels just increased to a point where I said, oh, you know what, fuck it. Uh, I'm just going to go do these myself and I'm going to self-publish them. So I spent about... Mm-hmm six months last year doing basically a PhD in, um, uh, well, you know, everyone knows it as self-publishing, but that's actually kind of a misnomer. It's the, the better term is probably independent publishing because you're doing it without a trade publisher behind you, but yes. you're not doing it on your own because if you do, you're a fucking idiot. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a pretty limited skill set. I, you know, I can put words on a page and that's about it. I'm not a cover designer. I sort of understand, you know, the principles behind cover design, I can, you know, I can open up an app and, you know, throw some stuff on there, but I shouldn't. If you want to know why I shouldn't be designing covers, just Google up uh, Kindle cover disasters and go to the <laughs> Tumblr and it's, it's magnificent. <laughs> so, you know, I got a high cover. Uh, I know, I, I know from 20 years experience, 30 years if you throw my media work in, that uh, I need to be edited. Uh, you know, I can write a story and think it's perfect. I give it to an editor and she will just, you know, cut the nuts off it. And um, so I, you know, I, one of the nice things for me, not so much for them, about the, the sort of the way the uh, mainstream publishing has been imploding since 2008, basically since the arrival of Amazon, um, even earlier, they've been sacking people, pushing them out the door and then taking them back on as freelancers because, of course, then they don't have to pay them holiday pay or sick leave or superannuation yeah. or anything like that. So, uh, you know, I have editors that I've worked with, really, really great editors that I've worked with in-house at places like Random House and Pam McMillan and Penguin who are now freelance. And um, there is absolutely nothing stopping me buying their services on the open market. So, you know... Cover designers, uh, editors, typesetters, because I'm going to do some of these books um, uh, in print. And um, they're all there, and I, I hire them all on. But, of course, I'm sort of now, all the risk is mine, so I'm sort of yeah. taking the money out of my pocket. So I think I'm pretty sure it, it will work out because uh, contractually the publishers have to send me um, spreadsheets. And I can see how many books I've sold and where I've sold and what formats I've sold. And uh, so I'm not just sort of like, you know, pulling unicorn wishes out of my ass. I can yeah. see 
exactly how many books I've sold and in what format. And <clears throat> I can't compete with a, uh, a mainstream publisher in bookstores. Just can't do it. That is their, yeah, that's their superpower, putting hardbacks and trade paperbacks yeah. and mass market paperbacks into brick and mortar bookstores. You cannot beat them. They are really good at it. They've been doing it for hundreds of years and that is, that is what they do best in the world. Uh, when you get into electronic sales, however, it's very, very different. Amazon is not a bookstore. Amazon is a search engine for people yep. who want to spend money. Mm. And once you understand that distinction, you also, you're about one step away from understanding that the advantage a mainstream publisher has in a place like Angus and Robertson, uh, or even in a your local independent store, evaporates at a place like Amazon. Jeff Bezos does not give a shit what you buy. He yeah. just wants you to buy something. And so the philosophy of a place like that is that they will show you on the home screen when you arrive the thing you are most likely to buy. Maybe it's a J.K. Rowling book. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is like where bear porn written by some guy sitting in his basement in Arkansas, <laughs> you know, whacking himself off in a giant panda suit. If that is what you want to drop your $2.99 on, that is what Jeff Bezos is going to show you on the front page at Amazon.com. And that situation you have where, you know, you walk into a bookstore and you will see, you know, J.K. Rowling and Stephen King piled high at the front. And yeah. you think, oh, God, they're popular. Well, yeah, they are. And that's why they're piled high at the front, partly. The main reason they're piled high at the front is because their publishers bought that space. They went to Dimmicks or Angus and Robertson and said, you know, <clears throat> we will give you a shit ton of money as long as we can stack up our books high at the front of the shop for, you know, this amount of time. And so that is the advantage that they, they have in that. They can't do that at Amazon. They can do it at places like Barnes & Noble, um, uh, and Kobo and, and even iBooks actually, uh, mm -hmm. they can buy those front slots uh, because they run themselves much more like a traditional uh, bookshop, but um, they're 20% of the market. Uh, Amazon basically, it's not a monopoly provider, but mm -hmm. it's as close as we're gonna get in the, um, in the world as it is at the moment. So this is what I'm doing, mate. I, uh, I've got my big space opera, which I'm having a lot of fun with. And then I've got this big bet that I'm making on publishing books myself. And um, it's, uh, it is a huge bet because if it doesn't come off, I'll probably end up living under a bridge. But <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm making it and I, I reckon it is going to pay. Absolutely. I, I reckon it will, JB. But more power to you. I think that that is, you're right, that is the future of what's going on. I think so. Um, there was a figure which didn't get a lot of reporting, um, came out a couple of weeks ago, and it was from Amazon. So, you know, it's, it's an Amazon figure, which means it's, you know, it, it's not made up, but uh, it is sprinkled with, with fairy dust, and it has been pulled from deep in the recesses of Jeff Bezos's bottom. Um, but it was something like, uh, you know, self-published e-books now made up 50% of everything. You know, and that's, that's probably the exact words they use because they, yeah. they don't... Um, Bezos charts famously don't have, like, you know, any, any kind of actual data on them. They're just an <laughs> x-axis, a y-axis, and an arrow shooting up to heaven. Um, 
And this, uh, this figure was, you know, it was of that ilk, but it's probably true. Um, it's, they, he has, he's done enormous damage to the, the, the book publishing industry and, you know, goddamn him to hell for that. But he has also created an entirely new book publishing industry and he has liberated, you know, well, hundreds of thousands of authors and he has made tens of thousands of them, uh, if not rich, then at least comfortable in a way that they could never, ever be comfortable as like struggling mid-listers at a, a major label. And, um, yeah. you know, the reading public, uh, in the end, who are the only ones that matter, they've done very well out of it. Uh, the publisher's not so well, but, um, you know, anybody who likes a book, uh, they, they now have effectively infinite choice and it doesn't matter how obscure their interest, somebody somewhere has written a book to, uh, to meet it. So I'm excited. I, I, I would actually, you know, you better cut me off because I would just keep talking about this <laughs> for hours. It is, it is the thing that sort of keeps me up late at night. It's the first thing I, I think about when I, I get up in the morning. And it's, um, I am, uh, even the business side of it, I'm really, really, really enjoying it. I'm, you know, I'm taking meetings. I never take meetings, you know. I'm, I'm at home, often without pants. And, um, you know, one of the things I've learned, you've got to wear pants to a meeting. So uh, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm learning as I go. I hear that there, but for the grace of God, go I. JB, thank you Thanks, for a, an excellent conversation. We can absolutely, we'll have to have round two at some point in the near future. Yeah. Just to continue to, to well, yap about some of this. I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to eat that custard tart, so it won't be. I'll have to find something. Back. Yeah, we'll make it work. Mate, thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. I really appreciate your time. Please know that your, um, well, the things you've said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. That's good fun. You are obviously on the Twitter. Are there any other social accounts that you want to admit to? Uh, like I got, I got a Facebook books page. I think it's just John Birmingham Books. You know, uh, people can go there and like it if you want. I, I, I sort of throw up excerpts and covers and occasionally give little bits and pieces of, uh, of writing advice. Um, I got my blog, obviously, Cheeseburger Gothic. And if you like uh, Game of Thrones recaps, I have the best one in the world there every... Um, Every Tuesday, I think that goes live for the next three months. That's Nat Behinsky's uh, Raven On. That's at cheeseburgergothic.com. Um, but, uh, you know, if anyone's listening and they are fans of the older series, uh, you know, Weapons of Choice, Axis of Time, The Disappearance, all, all last year's Hooper series, and, you know, they, they want to get the new stuff, uh, they can get it directly from me. And the way they do that is um, by joining the book club, which is... Uh, jbismymasternow.com <laughs> It's such a great name for it. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, I enjoy it. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at John Birmingham is 